we have guardrails. There's only so many hours in the day. There's going to be so much marketing to work. There's only going to be so much technology that we can have. And a person in an agency who has to manually dial a phone down a list of landlines, it's no support, no training is going to perform very differently than somebody who has the best CRM with AI powered phone and high quality leads who are actively shopping and the training to overcome objections and close those deals. It's going to be a very different type of journey for that employee. And so we as owners and founders and leaders have to ask ourselves, are we really putting those people in a position to succeed? That if they do bust their tail, that they're going to make that type of money or are they going to bust their tail, spin their tires because we don't have the processes, systems or infrastructure in place for them to get there. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our leadership, develop our teams and scale our business in a way that allows us to get our products and services out to the world yet still remain profitable? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. On today's episode, we have Andrew Filar. I tell you what, if you're in the insurance space, you're going to love this interview. You're going to hear Andrew is really not early in his career, but he started really young. He's 10 years into the business, but the way he approaches and the way if you've heard me discuss the importance of understanding the dials and the switches in the business and kind of thinking about yourself of sitting in the cockpit of your business, he's going to help you to kind of see it at a level that maybe you haven't heard before. I think you're going to get a ton of this. We really go deep, especially into comp plans and specifically comp plans for salespeople. And he does have a different not all that contrary. I mean, it is a little bit different, but I would say not contrarian to be contrarian, but really a unique approach that I think is going to serve all of you. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Filar. Ambition is the first step towards success. It's time to level up your agency. And Coach P Consulting will help you do just that by using the same strategies he used to sell over 700 life insurance policies in 2021 alone. Now, this is not your regular one and done type coaching. You'll get personalized coaching two days a week, every week of the month, and you'll get a live look behind the scenes of his team training and an office that's performing at the highest level. There's a reason Coach P Consulting is the fastest growing coaching company for insurance agency owners in the country. Coach P will train your team alongside his own and show you the exact steps they're taking to achieve chairman circle, exotic travel, and multi-line presence club, and be one of the few agents to be selected to have a third office. So whether your goal is to be at the top of your local market or amongst the best in the country, this training will give you the strategies and the tactics to get there. For just $250 a month, you'll get high-level coaching each week from someone who is already getting it done at that level, and his strategies work, and it's time to put them to work for you. Sign up at coachpeakconsulting.com and get your first full month for free when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Andrew Filer, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. Well, we always start with background and origin story. Love hearing how people got on their journey and how they got to where they are today. I mean, we'll get into what are you doing today and all of those kind of things. But I first always like to go back and allow people to be able to tell a little bit of their journey. So take it away. 
Yeah. So again, thanks for having me and, and thanks for giving me a chance to kind of walk through the uh, the journey a little bit, but I'll try to keep it brief. So 32 years old, been in the insurance industry for a little over a decade now. So I got into it right out of college, did a finance undergrad. And the only thing I knew coming out of undergrad was that I didn't want to work in finance. For whatever reason, it just I was living in Naples, Florida. You had a lot of wealth management down there. It just didn't seem that interesting to me. But I knew I didn't want to keep serving tables either. So I had a buddy who was working at State Farm and he said, hey, I think you'd be good at this role. My boss is hiring. And so I basically got brought on as an SDR or sales development rep or a lead generator or a telemarketer or whatever you want to call it to call commercial businesses and try to get their auto insurance so we can quote it. And I really sucked at it. I hated it, had no results for like six to eight months, but it was a learning ground. And basically the deal was is that once you got your life and health license, plus your property and casualty license, then you could start working new leads with the rest of the salespeople and, and start to make some money. And so I knew that at 22 years old, I was like, look, I hate this. I suck at it, but I'm 22, got a lot of time. I'm going to just give it a year and see what happens. And after six to eight months of, of struggling, I started to get a lot of traction, got my licenses, started working internet leads and producing 100 to 130 apps a month. And that was great. But what I found was that I was working way too many hours to do it. I was working probably 50, 60 hours a week. My salary was $1,000 a month, no benefits, no health insurance, and the rest was commission. And so I was just kind of bound and determined to make it work. And basically my goal was always to open my own agency. And so after like two years at State Farm, the largest Allstate agent in the country just happened to be located right down the street and got a hold of me, talking to me over a few months, trying to get me to come on board. And finally, one day I took his call and met with him. And he basically was like, look, if you come over here, all I need you to do is sell autos. I don't need you to sell life. I don't need you to sell health. I don't need you to sell credit cards or vehicle loans like I did at State Farm. And I was like, you know, I want to open my own agency. I'm going to be here for maybe a year, maybe two, and then I'm going to go open my own. And he said, that's fine. Just do it. I'm going to try to make sure you never want to leave. And then I worked for him for eight years running his agency in various roles. I started as a sales rep and became a sales manager, built basically a telemarketing team because we had all these, I would say kind of like old school or legacy type salespeople for him. It's that term works within that organization, not necessarily in general, but they were all used to the phone ring. And basically what we knew is that we had to do outbound calling to get to the numbers that we needed to do. And so to bridge that gap, we created an outbound calling team who would call and transfer to the salespeople. Fast forward a couple of years, we're hitting record numbers, maxing out the bonus. And in 2018, got an opportunity to move to Atlanta and, and open my agency and did that with a, with a couple partners. And we opened Scratch on July 1st, 2018. And when we hit five years, 30 days ago, we were 50,000 short of 32 million. So Scratch to basically 32 million in about five years and now trying to chart a course towards 100 million in the next five years. So we got 70 million to go. And It'll be a tough challenge, but that's what we're going for. And then I left that agent, his office in November of last year. So I opened my agency in 2018, but I continued to run his. So I kind of had two jobs for a while. And when I left his office, I started a consulting company called Next Call Club. And I do two things majorly. One is I help agents go from that seven to 10 million mark and they're ready to kind of take that next step or scale. You know, maybe they're at 12 million or 15 million and they're really wanting to get bigger a lot faster. And so I try to help break down their numbers and their processes. And I talk about with my four core pillars, I have people, processes, data, and marketing. And we break all those things down, get those things in line to get ready to scale. And then the other thing that we do is we help people build outbound calling teams in their agency, 100% US-based. And the main goal of that is to get a cost per transfer of 
$20 or less. And so that's what I'm up to today. And, and that's what I do. Oh, I've got all kinds of questions now. Fire, I got a bunch fire of questions. Well. Yeah. Fire all right. Well. So what were some of the things when you decided to take that leap? You said that you were working at the time for one of the largest agents in the country. What did you learn during that eight years that you, you know, use today? Here's what I would say. I think there's too many things, right, to really just lay them all out on this call. But I think one of the biggest ones are that you have to take risks if you want to have big results. And I think I've always been generally a little bit risk averse. And, and I think it's become less and less risk averse over time, more willing to take risks in a more calculated way. And I think the agent that I worked for became the biggest agent by taking huge risks, right? And, and for him, they paid off big time. And I think that was great to see because it was somebody who was not afraid of risk, I think, was willing to roll the dice, always had kind of an exit plan if the risk didn't work out. And I think for me, as somebody who always kind of played it safe and was a little bit more conservative, I used that to kind of pull me more towards the middle of, hey, maybe I'm not going to be as much open to taking risk, but I'm going to be a lot more open than I was before. And really what I figured out was by using basically financials and data, it helped me feel a lot better about taking those risks. So I think risk-taking and, and being willing and understanding that failure is part of the process. I know that's super cliche, but knowing that if you fail, it's not the end of the world, right? You're not dead in the water. And, and what we always talked about was don't go bankrupt, don't get arrested. You don't do those two things, you're probably going to be okay from a risk-taking standpoint. And so that was probably the biggest lesson I learned. Then the other one was just really how to manage people. And what I would say is that when I became a manager, I was 23 years old for the first time. I was managing people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and that can be intimidating. But at the end of the day, it took a little bit of time, but I basically got to a point where it's like, if I help these people hit their goals, they're going to buy in. And that's not always going to be easy. The, the decisions are not always going to be popular, but sometimes you've got to do what's right for the organization, not what's right for myself, not what's right for an individual person, but what's right for the entire organization. And then I'd say the last thing is I really did learn how to scale because in two ways, when I took over the agency operations, agency was in a little bit of flux. He had grown pretty significantly, but the agency was still being run by like your neighborhood agency. And if you're in the 60 million, 70 million and you have a relatively flat organizational chart that makes it very hard to communicate, very hard to move fast and do decisions, right? A flat org chart can be great if you've got three or four or five people in the organization. But when you have 50, 60 employees, you've got to have managers, you've got to have accountability, you've got to have responsibility. So from that standpoint, we put a lot of organizational structure into the organization. And then from a more micro standpoint, taking an idea, piloting it with two or three people, and then scaling it to 60 people across the organization. And so those are probably the three biggest lessons, scaling, risk-taking, and then just managing people in general. What has been the harder barrier to break getting to the first I'll let you say, so I'm just going to pull the numbers out that you may have different ranges. And so I'm going to say the first 5 million and then go from 5 to 10 and then 10 to 20 and then 20 to 30 or whatever that may be. You may end up having them and saying, look, and the reason I'm asking this is because I think I've said this before. If I had the opportunity to interview Elon Musk, I think my only question would be, what questions should I ask you that nobody is asking you? Because I don't even know what to ask. So the reason I'm asking this is because we're going to get to, okay, hey, what are the decisions you're making to go from 30 to 100? That's cool. But for somebody that's just starting out, okay, they're in the year two, the thing that you're doing at 30 is probably not going to, listen, I mean, you may disagree with me, but you may say, no, 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 you don't need to be even thinking about what I'm doing at 30. You've got to do these things. 
and I'm extending this question out longer than I need to, but it's kind of like saying my son who's going in seventh grade had to learn math, addition, right. subtraction, division, basic stuff before he can start learning calculus and all of these advanced things, right? And so it's almost like, what are the skills that I need to know to get my bucket five? And then I can start thinking about what it is actually need to do to get to okay. So I would say the first 5 million is the hardest. The advice that I always give to newer agents is do whatever you can to get to 5 million as fast as you can. And if you're at 2 million or you're at 3 million and you have an opportunity to buy 3 million, I think that you should probably take a hard look at doing that. Of course, everyone's situation is different, so I don't want to give blanket advice. But once you get to 5 million, especially if you've got a solid sales operation, now you're starting to make 450 to 600,000 in revenue per year and you can start to open the game up a little bit. And I think when you're 1 million or 2 million or 3 million, it can be pretty challenging because a lot of times the agent is talking to customers because that's what you've got to do, right? Maybe you don't have enough money to have an office manager. You don't have enough capital to say, hey, you know, I'm going to have three people on sales and three people on customer service, and then I'm going to work on the business. I think long-term, most entrepreneurs want to work on the business, not in the business. And I think that that can be pretty generalized advice. But when, before you get to 5 million, it can be very hard to work on the business because you just don't have enough capital to get the right people and enough people in. Once you hit 5 million, the game starts to open up a little bit. And what I always tell people is that even if you have to borrow money to get there, I think that it can be worth it. Some people have tried to scale their agency without debt and have done it very, very well. We've used debt. We've used debt pretty handily and it's always a calculated risk. But there's no way we could have scaled from zero to 32 million without debt. And so I think if there's something to always think about is that if you want to scale quickly, you probably have to use debt or have capital coming from somewhere else because it's hard to be profitable and grow at the same time. And so that first 5 million, what I always tell agents is that higher sales as fast as you can, replicate yourself on the sales side as fast as you can, and then try to be like an all pro left tackle where you're just clearing the way for those salespeople to let them sell, 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 especially with the way that a lot of the insurance industry is going. I know Allstate's doing it, but a lot of other carriers are doing it as well is that they're moving more and more of the commission to new business and less to the renewal. And so new business is being rewarded. And so if you're sub 5 million, you got to try to get to 5 million and you either have to acquire or you have to write a lot of business. And so invest in sales, invest in sales processes. And I think from a consulting standpoint, when somebody's not 5 million or somebody's not in that kind of range yet, I think that it can be hard to invest in coaching or consulting or whole outbound program. But I think the fundamentals are basically the same. Don't spend a ton of money on your office right? Focus on the things that drive revenue. If you're going to spend money, make sure your expenses are leading to revenue. And if your expenses are not leading to revenue, you probably shouldn't have them, at least not early on. And what I would say is that we built the agency with salespeople making outbound calls on internet leads and rolling. And so the thing that I would say is that the fastest, most cost-effective way to grow is through outbound sales. I really do believe that. But you've got to make sure that you know how you're doing it. And you can't just rely on internet leads or a good list. A lot of people think that's where you start. That's where you finish. you got to have a process first. You have to have a CRM first. You add the leads in later. But getting to 5 million, that's kind of the first barrier. And then 10 million and then 20 million. And it's like every time you double it, in my opinion, it gets easier. And every time you double, you can also change the organizational structure. So the way you run a $1 million agency is not the same way you run a two, which is not the same way you run a four, which is not the same way you run an eight or 10 or 20 or a 40, so on and so forth. So 
I want to dig into this. I like to try to take things as much as possible in the podcast from high level conceptual stuff down into, okay, what does this actually look like? Right. So when you're talking about sales teams, some of it gets actually can get wonky if you don't have the actual model with the yeah. compensation plan, the marketing that has to be wrapped around the sales account executive. Okay. We'll just call it that the salesperson. Yeah. All of that stuff. And so you end up with this really wide variety of base salary plus compensation plans plus marketing. And it's kind of willy nilly versus no, no, no. This is the model that we know works, right? And so this is a profitable model. You wrap it, we'll get to training and that sort of thing in just a second with word tracks, et cetera. But I think that even if you have great word tracks, you have a great sales system, if the actual model of the salesperson is not structured correctly, it's not going to be profitable and you're going to end up in a negative cash flow cycle, correct? 100%. And so what we always talk about is we say you really got to know three numbers, okay? From a financial perspective, you got to know three numbers. You need to know what does it cost you to acquire a customer? If you're in the insurance world, maybe that's an item or a policy. If you're in B2B or SaaS or really just any type of service-based business, maybe it's a whole customer. So you need to know your cost per acquisition. You need to understand your payback period, right? How long is it taking you to break even after you pay the salary, the bonus, the technology, the marketing? How long does it take you to pay that back? And then what is the customer life? And if you plot those really just kind of on like a chart, right? Comes in here, the life is here. And then I break even somewhere here. Obviously, the faster you break even, the more profit you have. And it's not enough to just look at cost per acquisition. And a lot of people think they know their cost per acquisition. And what they really know is their marketing cost per acquisition. They're really looking at return on ad spend or marketing cost per acquisition. And you've got to break it down. You've got to understand, you know, what's my marketing cost per acquisition? What's my sales team cost per acquisition? And what's the technology cost per acquisition? And then add those up to get like a fully baked number. And once you understand all of these types of things, you can actually create a comp plan that makes more sense. And what I would say is that one of the biggest mistakes that I see agents make from a financial perspective is that they make the comp plan pretty generous because they want their team to strive for it. Sure. The salesperson does too good and either they're paying way too much money and they don't want to change it or they're paying way too much money and they change it and everybody gets upset. Yeah. And what I typically see, at least in the insurance world, is people do a low base salary with extremely high upside. And I think that if you're an agent that's not at 5 million or 6 million yet, I think that can make sense, right? Because you have to really cover your downside risk. And if you have someone who's a, at a high base salary, you've got to hire well, you got to fire fast. If they're not working out, you got to train really well. But once you get to a safer place from a revenue perspective, I don't see a lot of agents upping their base. And I think that's a mistake because we've always historically paid a higher base than a lot of other agents. We pay 45000 to start, full benefits package. And then the salary can actually go as high as $85,000 a year. And so our top producers have $85,000, $90,000 bases plus upside. And the reason that we do that is because our base upside on any type of bonus is flat. So the better they do, the better we do. And what a lot of agents do instead is they they give a low base and they kind of stair step their commission. So the more you write, the higher your percentage goes. And what happens is, is they'll spend a ton of money to get their numbers because they need to do it for their own profitability or their own revenue goals or their own bonus goals. And then they're paying out this absurd amount of money 
in commission and that salesperson really didn't have to do anything that much different. And, and I'm not trying to take anything away from salespeople. Salespeople work hard, they're the lifeblood of the organization and you should pay your top performers. But sometimes what happens is when you stair step that commission, as your production scales, sometimes the profitability gets worse. It's squeezing the profitability, the better they do. Exactly. And then the more you write, the worse you do. And that's the exact opposite of where you want to be. And so you've got to nail the comp plan, because if you nail the comp plan to your point, you can scale endlessly. And if you align those goals properly, you shouldn't have to change the comp plan very quickly. And the way that you do that is by running scenarios. I think sometimes people just put something together because creating comp plans is hard. I mean, I think that I've probably created seven, eight, nine comp plans over the years. And I finally landed on one on attempt four or five that works really well. And we haven't really changed it since we opened. We've changed the little extra spiffs, but not the core of it. But we can scale and it actually gets more profitable the better we do. Some people are on comp plan 70.2. Not seven. <laughs> yeah, I got that. They've been rated so many times. Okay, so what are the things that get calculated in? By the way, some of the terminology he mentioned there, especially if you get out of insurance, it's pretty common stuff, but CAC, so customer acquisition cost. And then he also talked about, he threw one in there, ROAS, so return on ad spend or whatever. But specifically, and, and then you also mentioned LTV, so lifetime value of the client, right? So you're obviously having to take some educated guesses on some of those things, but you can get kind of an idea, right? You can get an idea if you just take even a really simple one is how many customers do you have? How much premium do you have total? Divide that to, and you get an average number. And don't you agree? That's going to be somewhat close enough to say, hey, this is $2,500 a year in premium or $3,000 a year in premium. That's not that far off, right? There's clearly some yeah. people that are your customers that pay you 20000 a year and some of them pay you two hundred. So we get that. So that's an important number. But what are the factors that go into customer acquisition costs? The reason I'm asking this is because, okay, clearly I can say salary, comp, if you're paying full benefits, 401k, health insurance, et cetera. Okay, I got that. That makes sense. But how far do I go with that? Meaning, do I include a, do I allocate a percentage of my rent? because that person is taking that. What about my CRM cost and all of my other ancillaries? That's the thing where you can go like, how far do I have to go with that? Do you pull it all? Or are you saying, no, 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 the incremental cost, all of these costs are going to be there regardless if I have this position. But if I add you, then these are the costs that are actually incurred by having you on the team. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. What I would say is that I think that we use something called scenario analysis, right? So what we try to do is we try to isolate and look in a vacuum. And what that basically means is that what are the expenses that you need to generate a sale? And so rent could be one. And what I mean by that is that you say, if you go out and rent an office specifically for a sales team to work in, and you need that office for the sales team to work there, I would attribute that to customer acquisition cost. In my situation, I don't attribute rent to the customer acquisition cost because we're going to have an office regardless of whether we had a sales team or we didn't have a sales team. Right. And so when you ask what goes into ours, salary, like you said, bonus or commissions, tax benefits, technology, so your CRM, if you're using any type of spam remediation solution for outbound or you're using any types of gamification or agency scoreboard type thing, anything that you're buying for the sales team that you believe goes into it. I have two sales trainers in my organization. I attribute them 
they're not managers, they're not salespeople, but they make my sales team more effective. And if I didn't have a sales team, I wouldn't have sales trainers. And then of course, all of the marketing spend that is meant to drive new business. So if I send out a bunch of letters to my current clients, just thanking them for being a client, I'm not going to consider that marketing spend for sales, even if a sale comes up because of it, but it express purpose was not to do that. And so that makes you know, I try to try to break down and then I ask a question, I say, would I have this regardless? And I would say the answer is yes or no. And then if the answer is yes, you put it into that calculation. If the answer is no, you don't. And there's a lot of ways to account for that, right? I think sometimes you look at a company and you know, obviously we're looking at small businesses here, but if you look at a publicly traded company and you look at their annual report, sometimes there's cost of goods sold and it's lumped in there. And sometimes you have sales administration general expenses and it's lumped in there and it's all about the guidance. And I think that you can do it however you want to do it, as long as you're not playing games with the accounting and you're not playing mental accounting. The key is for it not to look good. The key is for it to be right and hopefully look good. But if it's not good, then okay, well, then you know what you need to deliver to pull. And that's why I break down that fully baked cost per acquisition between marketing technology and salary, because I'll give you an example, right? Like a lot of our cost per acquisition, a lot of the meat comes from salary and bonus. Whereas other agents, I've looked at their numbers, you know, I've done consulting with them, I've broken it down. Their cost per acquisition on salary is 10% of it. And that's all into marketing, which that tells you, okay, well, I need to get my marketing cost per acquisition. And the efficiency is sure. not there. If somebody's got all that cost per acquisition coming out of salary, well, maybe their comp plan is too generous or maybe their bases are too high for what is being written. And then the same thing with technology. Maybe you're just spending way too much on your phone system or you're spending way too much money on branded caller ID or something like that. And so that's why I think it's so important not only to look at it from a fully baked perspective, but to break it down as well and understand where those costs are coming from. Yeah, I think an example that's just kind of in mind is that if somebody you pay for would fall on your P&L under marketing and you pay $250, we're coming up on at the time of this recording, high school football is coming and you're going to put a sign out there and it's 250 bucks for you to renew the sign and you pay it every year to your local high school. Well, you're going to do that regardless if you have any incremental sales. So no, pull that out. But if you're buying leads, you have a paid ad or a performance marketing strategy that you're pulling on and you add an incremental person. And so that's X thousand dollars. That absolutely has to go to that. And those are two different things. While at the same time, they end up falling under a broader umbrella label of marketing, but they're not at all the same. And so I think that I just want to kind of call that out for people to kind of share that example. Okay. So that makes sense. I think that one of the things that we're going to pivot to in a second that I want to talk about is, okay, I hear you. That makes sense. Always try to put myself into if somebody's listening to the podcast, what are some of the questions they're going to be like screaming into their AirPods to say, Bradley, ask him this question. So, yeah, I've been paying people $30,000 salary, let's just say hypothetically. And you're saying, wait a minute, I need to pay them 50, 60. Yeah, that's not going to work with the comp plan that I have currently. All right. Well, I'm hearing you, but you're going to have to share with me a little bit more of that because then. If I give a salary, I'm definitely going to pull down, but then I don't want to disenfranchise my salesperson to strive for these higher things. But I also, at the same time, absolutely relate to you that says, yeah, actually, my salesperson had a killer month and I kind of wish they hadn't hit that extra tier because if they'd have been just under the tier, it would have been more profitable for me. But they did. And it's like, oh, crap. Now I'm short the cash. 
I'll make it in a year, but it's going to be a while. You see what I'm saying? So help me break that down. And then I want to get into training and development to make sure that actually when we hire people, that they are hitting some of those numbers. And if I missed the mark on answering this, that's just let me know. But I think it's part of the reason the higher salary is good. There's a couple of reasons. I think psychologically something happens to us with a salary. And mm-hmm. most of us want to make more this year than we made last year. I think that's a very normal thing. And once you have a salary, you don't want to go backwards on that salary. So I think that's one of the pieces that I really like about salary is that if somebody has a $30,000 base and you give them a $5,000 raise, they're going to love that a lot more than a $5,000 bonus. And from a purely financial standpoint, having that $5,000 up front is actually better because you can use that money today and you can invest that money and get interest on that money or do something with that money. But psychologically, people almost always prefer the salary. So when you have that psychological effect, it leads to people sticking around longer, right? People feel like they're progressing from a salary standpoint. They tend to stick around a bit longer because if you've got that low base, something I hear a lot of people say a lot is, well, I want to give them a low base and give them good upside because I want them to be hungry and striving every single month for that paycheck. And what I always ask them is, okay, well, maybe they are hungry, maybe they are striving, but what if they're actually desperate? Or what if they're actually cutting corners to make sure they hit that number? And of course you can have a compliance program and you don't want people to be desperate either, but you don't want people feeling stressed out about money every month and having to choose me versus you. I think that's one thing. I think the other piece is that psychologically making sure that you know you can get your bills covered by your base, I think does a lot to reduce stress on salespeople, which is mm-hmm. salespeople are almost always burning out. The burnout in sales is incredible. And so you get people to stick around longer when there's a tenure and then you also attract better quality candidates as well. And what I mean by that is maybe they have more experience or maybe they're more credentialed, you know, whatever credential that looks like. But if I think about who's the hungry, motivated person that will take a $30,000 base, it's probably someone in their 20s or it's like a single mom or somebody who really needs money or really is willing to work a lot of hours. And for me, I'd rather say, hey, I'd rather just make sure that I pay a better base and somebody works 40 hours and brings their best self to work for those 40 hours than doing what I had to do with a $1,000 base, working 50, 60, 70 hours a week to hit 90 or $100,000 a year. And yeah, I did it, but I was burned out and exhausted and I stayed two years and quit because I didn't want to do it. The other thing I think about is that what if somebody who would be amazing for the job has a spouse or has kids and they need a forty-five dollars or $50,000 base to feel comfortable taking a role? Well, you're immediately getting rid of that entire part of the talent pool because the base just isn't there. It doesn't mean that you just throw a $50,000 base if your base was at 30. It doesn't mean you just throw it out there, but it does put more pressure on you as the leader to vet, hire, and train well. And you can't just throw a bunch of people at the wall if you're paying a higher base because you have a significant amount of risk to do that. The stakes are definitely higher. But what I've found is that it's a lot more expensive to have that empty seat than it is to overpay somebody for a month. And I just did this the other day. I try to post on LinkedIn every single day. I'm doing like a 365 day challenge. And one that I did last week was I said, what's the cost of an empty seat in my organization. And what I figured out is that it's something like $80,000 of lifetime revenue if I have an empty sales seat in my organization for three months. That is $85,000 of lifetime revenue that I miss out on. And so what I wanna do is I wanna make sure that, one, if I feel like I wanna have proactive conversations about people's development, so if they're gonna leave, I know ahead of time so I can backfill and there's no, it's seamless. 
I want to know that if I'm hiring slowly or hiring poorly, I want to know how much that's costing me. Mm-hmm. And I want to speed up the hiring process in general. And so I think sometimes we look at what we're paying people, but we don't look at the opportunity cost of what we're missing out on if we lose somebody really good. As a business owner, you know the importance of being able to set goals, track your progress, and see the results. Well, that's exactly what our partners at Today App Pro have been able to build just for you. Today App is corporate approved. It allows you to track activities, build custom word tracks. It allows you to calculate all your commissions and your bonus structures in a seamless fashion, and it integrates perfectly with your company CRM. Today App is truly the best office software to manage all of the day-to-day in one place. It can even manage your employees' time, track production, have a leaderboard with metrics, and has custom reporting. Visit todayapppro.com, todayapppro.com, and schedule a demo and let them know you heard about them on the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue, increase your bottom line, and better manage your taxes? Club Capital is here to help. Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agents in the country, providing monthly accounting, tax strategy, and CFO services. Way more than bookkeeping and your everyday run-of-the-mill tax prep, Club Capital is focused on providing financial and tax advisory services that help you plan and forecast your agency's performance. Their financial dashboards and agency forecasting tools help you better understand your agency's historical performance, create and measure future targets, and see how your agency compares to your peers around the country. Imagine what it would be like to understand the impact to your bottom line when deciding to hire a new employee or forecast the impact rate changes or commission rates will have on your business. With over $200 million in tracked annual revenue and $140 million in tracked annual expenses, Club Capital has the data and the team to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. They will help you turn that back office stress into the backbone of your agency's success by giving you the tools to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book a solution overview with one of our business consultants. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. Have you ever thought, wouldn't it be incredible if you had direct access to our expert podcast guest in real time and be able to ask a question specific to your business? Well, now you have the opportunity to do that. After three and a half years, we're finally launching a leadership podcast community, and we want you to be a part of it. We're launching this podcast community on June the 1st. Go to club.capital forward slash podcast, and you'll get all the details. You'll be able to interact with every single one of the podcasts that we record in real time and ask us questions and be able to ask the guest questions. In addition to that, we're going to have a monthly exclusive Q&A just for our leadership podcast listeners. Go to club.capital forward slash podcast. That's club.capital forward slash podcast and be one of the very first to join. I can't wait to see you in our leadership podcast community. I think that one thing that really stands out to me that you just mentioned is it puts the onus back on you, the founder, to make a better decision if you're paying someone 50 versus 30. And the reality is in the long term, it probably, unless you're just completely flipping about it, you're going to take your time. You're going to say, wait a minute now, I'm going to make sure I'm making the right decision on this because I'm paying this person 50. Whereas if you're paying them 30, you almost can be like, ah, whatever. It, if it works out, fine. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Let's just say you pay them 60. Okay, let's just make it double, literally double, right? It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm shelling out five grand base plus taxes and everything else. I'm going to take my time on this versus 
paying them $2,500 a month. Well, that extra filter vetting, those additional interviews that you do, you're more stringent on that. You end up actually becoming long-term more profitable because you're not churning through as many people with lesser talented folks than you would be prior to that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that turnover not only costs you from a production or a revenue standpoint, but it's not great for culture either. Nobody likes to be in an office where people are constantly quitting or getting fired. That's not great either for like a great team environment. I think back to some of the environments I was in where people would get fired and it's like you get to the year where all of the uh, documents come in for taxes have to get mailed out and there's a stack this thick of 60 people who've come through the organization. It's hard to believe, but I think that's not that uncommon if I'm being honest. I've been there. I've been there where I've had a lot of turnover and so I'm not pointing my nose down or anything. I've been there and I think I've gotten to this place of paying people more because I understand that when you pay people more and you take care of them, they stick around longer and that's better and more profitable in the long run. But I think sometimes it's just used to think of like a reframe. Sometimes people don't want to give somebody like a $5,000 raise because they don't want to pay the $5,000 and then that person quits and they don't realize how much money they're losing by that person being gone. And it's like, if you break that $5,000, that's like 400 bucks a month. It's a hundred dollars a week. That's 20 bucks a day. If you have somebody good, you should be willing to pay an extra hundred dollars a week. And another thing I would say is that I talk to people about this all the time. And sometimes it's just showing the analogy or showing the comparisons. Like we talked about that idea of 30,000 versus 50,000. That's $20,000 a year. That's roughly $1,600 a month, something like that. Well, a lot of agents out there are paying $50 for a live call to talk to a qualified prospect on the phone. That's 30 calls, right? Mm -hmm. You could have a much better salesperson, or you could have 30 live calls. One looks like an investment. One looks a little bit like an expense. And I think that's always helped me as saying, okay, if I'm going to make this investment, if I'm going to spend this money, what is my trade-off, right? What could I trade that money for instead? And do I have a better opportunity to trade that money? And will that work out better? The other thing I try to think about is, okay, what does that actually cost me? And I think that's a good exercise anytime you spend money in your business is, okay, what's the goal of this spend? Is it to increase the tenure? Is it to reduce stress and burnout and hopefully increase satisfaction? Is it to drive more business? Is it to increase retention and therefore the customer life and the lifetime value? I think that we're so busy and I definitely do this too, that sometimes we just say, yeah, 800 bucks, no problem. And you swipe it. But then when somebody wants 800 bucks, you're like, "Mm, I don't think so. And for whatever reason, the person versus a product or service or an item, there's that emotional barrier. And, and I think people are hit our P&L as an expense, but they're the biggest investment we have. Yeah. Look, I think you're going to spend the thing that you value the least and it's either your time or your money. And so therefore that person that you said, I'm not going to do that because you didn't want to pay them and then they leave, you're more than likely, depending on where you are, you're going to invest your time and having to recruit, find, train, develop, and all of those things to get that person up there. Now, that's not to say, well, yeah, but Bradley or Andrew or both of you, that sounds good, but I have a C player. I don't want to pay him A player. Well, that's fair too. Okay. I mean, we're not saying pay an underperformer A player salary and compensation and just bend over and give them whatever they want. Can you just speak to that specifically too about like, well, wait a minute now, we're talking about somebody who is doing the work, hitting the numbers, and we happen to be focusing our attention on sales, which is the engine of the business. But I'd love for you to just address that. 
Absolutely. And something I do when I consult with agents is I help them either adjust their comp plan or make a whole new comp plan. And comp plans aren't one size fits all. I don't want to come across saying like the way that I pay is the best way. I do think it's the best way for my team and my organization, but it's not going to be the best for every team and every organization. And and I think there's a couple things to address the piece about the C player, right? Is it like something I do some of the times we create what's called a draw and a draw means that if you perform at X level, Forever Y timeframe, your salary goes up, right? Or if you don't perform, your salary goes down. And that can be really, really valuable as a leader or a sales leader or a customer service leader, or really anyone who's going to get paid on performance, because naturally as people, we're loss averse. So we're very afraid of losing things. So once somebody gets a higher salary, they really don't want to lose it. They tend to work really hard to keep it. And sometimes you have organizations that recover that draw, so they'll charge back. Sometimes they don't do a chargeback. My organization, we do a non-recoverable draw. So every six months, we look at what the salesperson's done. And based on that six-month performance, their salary can range from $45,000 a year to $85,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And typically, when people get into that high, those higher bands, 55 or 65 or 75 or 85, they don't go down. They tend mm-hmm. to stay there. And it aligns the goals, which is like the next point that I want to make is that you have to align your goals to theirs. Because if your goals aren't perfectly aligned, someone's going to be losing, right? Someone, it's always going to be zero sum. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose. And when you align your goals properly, when they win, you win. And when you pay a huge commission check, you pay a $15,000 commission check, you should be grinning ear to ear because that means that you made a bunch of money too. And that goes back to your point you made earlier. It's like somebody did really well and maybe you're like, oh man, I got to pay $15,000. If you're feeling that way, it means your goals aren't properly aligned. Yeah. And I do think that it seems like insurance agents, because of maybe bonus structures or incentives that they get from the company that they may represent, almost say, I don't really know, but therefore I just know I'm making enough money to be able to pay it. And so it's like, well, it's not really a scalable thing. So if you had a hundred of that person doing it at that level, you wouldn't have enough cash burn. You would burn too much cash than what you have, right? Versus if you put it on the other side and said, wait a minute, what if I was selling something else? And then it's like, well, okay, this person needs to collect this much up front for me to be profitable from the get-go. Now we know that one of the huge advantages of an insurance space is the long-term renewals, right? It's like, well, I'm going to get it back over time. That's very true. But you have to also look at the cash burn that you have up front. And don't you also think that since COVID, it's not really a COVID thing, but inflation came really obviously from what all happened with COVID, is that people 10 years ago, you could get away with that $1,000 salary if the comp plan was big enough now, no way. I think that it's hard to justify if you are the employee to take a thousand dollar salary or even like a $15 an hour salary doing something like insurance that requires a license or multiple licenses. When you could go work at Target stocking shelves for $15 and there's nothing wrong with that, right? You could say, look, I could go work at Target. I could not get yelled at by customers. I could stock shelves. I don't need to get a license to do it. And I could probably not have to work a full eight hour day. And there's a lot of benefits to that. So why would I take a job, get paying the same thing? Yeah, maybe there's upside. Maybe if they train me well and if they provide me with enough marketing and if the environment is good and conducive to growth, right? There's a lot of risk on that employee to take that job. I know somebody whose 17-year-old son has a job 
at $18 an hour working at Home Depot. And I don't think he would take a job in insurance making 15 an hour. I think he'd want at least 18, right? It goes back to that idea of you always want to make more. And yes, you can make more with bonus. Maybe. I think a lot of owners, at least in the insurance space, our perception is reality. And I, I'm guilty of this too. And you say, well, if you bust it, you're going to make $80,000 a year. But we have to ask ourselves as owners, founders, leaders, do we really have the environment where that is realistic? Because if it's not realistic, we shouldn't be talking about it. If someone's yeah. not making $80,000 a year, you shouldn't say you can make $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Like I see people on job that say, oh, I'm limited earning potential. Well, that's not true because we have guardrails. There's only so many hours in a day. There's going to be only so much marketing to work. There's only going to be so much technology that we can have. And a person in an agency who has to manually dial a phone down a list of landlines, it's no support, no training is going to perform very differently than somebody who has the best CRM with AI powered phone and high quality leads who are actively shopping and the training to overcome objections and close those deals. It's going to be a very different type of journey for that employee. And so we as owners and founders and leaders have to ask ourselves, are we really putting those people in a position to succeed that if they do bust their tail, that they're going to make that type of money or Are they going to bust their tail, spin their tires because we don't have the processes, systems, or infrastructure in place for them to get there? So I just want to take 30 seconds on this. How do you approach account managers? And so we've been really focused on sales. And so now you may call them something else, customer service, customer care, account managers, whatever. Okay. The customer is there. So how do you look at a total spend from a percentage basis for somebody who is on the service end? It's a hot topic in my business right now. It's something that I think a lot of people are just kind of resigned to say, you need to have account managers or I need to have a customer service team. And that's just going to be a cost for us. And it's what we call in the accounting space, a cost center. You're managing costs. You're not managing to profit. And you're just trying to reduce costs as much as possible. I think that's a mistake. It's something I've done for a long time. And I think it's something that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about lately of how can I change that? And what I think about is that the function of my customer service team is to create a great customer experience. And I want my sales team, basically my inside sales team, people who are not out in the field, they're at a desk, they're mostly dialing, mostly trying to get people into the agency. I want them focused 100% on bringing new customers in. From a customer experience standpoint, they're gonna mostly take inbound calls or make proactive outbound calls on renewals or account problems or just kind of check-ins. And what I've thought about for a long time is how do we manage the cost? but there's trade-offs to everything, right? So it's like, if you're trying to cut costs everywhere, you're not going to create a great customer experience. And so what we've tried to do is we've tried to set a benchmark of a goal. I should say a goal, not a benchmark. We've set a goal of 50% of our customer service team's expenses to be covered by the production they get. And first and foremost, they need to be, they need to create a great customer experience, be pleasant, help them with what they need, right? Don't be somebody who's constantly just giving a line and shoving product down their throat look at the account, look for gaps and make recommendations. Sometimes that might be an upsell. Hey, you've got this type of coverage or this type of service. Let's get you into a higher tier service. And here's why I think that's a good fit for you or your family or your account or whatever. Sometimes that's a cross sell. Hey, you have this product, but not that product. And based on our conversation, I really think you should bundle those together. And here's a discount for doing it. And then I think another one is just about if you don't have a recommendation to make, can you just create that warm, fuzzy feeling for them and ask for a referral. I don't want them writing new business and auto policies or home policies. For me, it's about answer that phone, give a great experience, 
make recommendations on things they need. If there's not a need, if you don't uncover a need or don't talk about a need, don't pitch it. Just thank them for their business and maybe ask for a referral. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. I think that it's always going to incur a cost, but you can measure and figure out how much of their seat can be covered and do that in a way that doesn't hurt the experience. At the end of the day, I'd rather cover 20% of the seat and have a 10 out of 10 customer experience than cover 80% of the seat and have a two out of 10 customers experience. And that doesn't mean you can't have both, but I do think it's hard. We didn't really get to this too much, but you mentioned our pillars, people, processes, data, and marketing. I think that while the conversation has been kind of centered around or geared towards compensation plans, and really specifically compensation plans for salespeople, I think it's pretty obvious that you're a big believer in data and knowing your numbers and then even knowing what numbers to be, what numbers to track. This is not just somebody hears, know your numbers and they go, oh, I know how many quotes we did and I know how many sales we did. It's like, right. mm, well, good. Okay. You need to know that too, <laughs> but that's not the only numbers. What are a few other numbers that you think are really important regarding data? Yeah, I try to break it down into a few buckets, right? From a sales perspective, I want to know, of course, how many people did we quote? How many new people did we present proposals to on a day-to-day basis, right? And then of course, over months or a year, et cetera, quarter. That's one. Close rate, very straightforward, very common. How many people did we sell versus how many people did we give proposals or quotes to? So those are two quick and easy ones on the sales side. On the customer service side, we look at a couple things. Like one is abandoned call rate. So if we got 150 inbound calls, how many of those calls did we miss? Our goal is to miss none of those calls. We don't want to be the people who you call in, you go through a phone tree, you're frustrated, then you hit a voicemail and you've got to get a call back and you had 20 minutes to solve this problem that you've been putting off for two weeks, right? So missed calls is a huge one. We also look at one call resolution. So how often are we solving the problem in one call without a callback? Those two are, for us, the two most important metrics on the customer service side. Because at the end of the day, it can be different in different markets, but our ideal customer profile in the Atlanta, Georgia areas, it tends to be people who are like family working age, 30 to 65 years old, people who are very busy. If they're calling the insurance agency, there's probably a problem or there's probably a question. They've probably been putting it off, right? And we text and we email and we have a live chat. We do all these things, but people still call quite a bit. So that's customer service. On the HR side, we want to know how many people are in our interview funnel at any given time. We want to know what's the average tenure. We want to know what's the pass and fail rate on interviews. I think that's a huge one. We see people, especially newer managers, either skew way too hard towards failing people. They only pass 10% of people. Other people pass 90% of people. And really the idea is that depending where you're at in the funnel, it should probably be different things. Like a final interview, maybe 10% or 20%, right? Or maybe the final interview should be 80% because you want that first interview with the hiring manager, maybe you want them to pass 20, they want them to be the filter 20%. And so we look at those on the HR side. And then from a financial standpoint, we already talked about lifetime payback period and cost per acquisition, but we also benchmark quite a bit. So we look at percentage of revenue to cost. So we look at, we want our salary and bonuses to be in that 50 to 60% of total revenue range, marketing to be in that eight to 10% range. So we look at stuff a little bit like that. And I mean, If I told you every single metric that we tracked, it would probably take me half an hour to lay it out. We have four analysts on staff, and I always tell people that an analyst is one of the best investments that you can make. 
if you hire the right person, which isn't always easy, but you hire the right person, they can help you find a lot of efficiencies in your business or things that look really ugly and maybe they don't know how to fix it, but maybe you do. And again, it's not about the numbers looking pretty. It's about knowing what they are, what is reality, what is true. And then either if it's a good number, scale the hell out of it. If it's not a good number, fix it and then scale the hell out of it. An example of that is like, sometimes we look at a marketing source and ROI is 800%. And that sounds really cool, but that probably means we're leaving some growth on the table. I'd rather scale the hell out of that, get 200% ROI and get a lot more new business because I know that over the long term, it's going to be profitable and grow. I love it. All right, Andrew, again, make me a promise. You, you come back on. I will we'll dive up. more into some more numbers. We'll dive into some of the other pillars. Or we could have just made this, if we didn't have other bookings, we would have made this into a Joe Rogan or Jocko three-hour three hour podcast yeah, or something. Three okay. <laughs> this has been great. I enjoy this. I really do love the business end of business. That, that's where I geek out. And so you could apply this, whether it's, I know many of your listeners are certainly insurance, but if you're not insurance still, there's a lot of this that's principle-based in terms of knowing this regardless of the industry that you happen to be in. Obviously, Andrew is an expert when it comes to on the insurance side, but I think that knowing the numbers, it's just not enough to say, I'm not a numbers person, right? It's a cop-out. And it's like, well, that's fine, but you're probably not going to be able to scale that business to what you want. And the thing is, Obviously, Andrew, you're really smart, but these are skills that you acquired too, right? I mean, you learned this type of thing. It's not like you were born, oh, I'm just some whiz on that. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from you. I'm actually mean. People can acquire this stuff, right? They absolutely can. I think when it comes to data, I started with one guy who was working with us and we started with Excel spreadsheets and YouTube videos. I have a finance background, so I had a basic understanding of financial metrics. But what I would say is that I got my MBA a couple of years ago and the first class they have everybody take is an accounting class. And I'll just tell you this. I took accounting in undergrad when I was 19 years old. And I remember trying to memorize which side credits and debits went on because I didn't understand it. But if you've managed a business accounting is the best class you can take because you're like, oh yeah, I've managed my P&L. I understand this. And I tell people all the time, you could go online, you could find a free course, you go on Coursera, you could go on, there's a couple of these other ones. I really love maven.com. It's like a cohort-based course with an instructor. It's like once or twice a week, take an accounting course. And because you already have experience running a business and running a P&L, the insights that you get from an accounting course are going to be incredible. And yeah, accounting sounds really boring. And yeah, you have an accountant, But if you can understand accounting, even just a little bit, by taking a course that you invest maybe eight hours and a couple hundred dollars in, those conversations with your accountant are going to be so much better. And it's going to give you intense amount of knowledge to manage your business better. Yeah. Well, I'm obviously going to plug Club Capital here on this sort of thing. But I mean, he just gave the best plug ever. Whether it's Club Capital or someone else, you got to have this stuff. Right. And this is kind of the example having the financials and tying the financials to the decisions that are making in the business, the sales numbers, et cetera, and linking those together is how you scale. You didn't just willy nilly go borrow money and be like, I don't know, man, just bank on me. We're going to make it happen. No, there's actually some numbers and some things that you've been able to look at and say, hey, well, let's leverage some debt, but here's the numbers that we have to have make that happen. So, hey, Andrew, people want to connect with you. Where should they go? Two places that are best to find me. You can find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Andrew Filer. That's Andrew, F-I-L-A-R. Connect with me there. I'm on that every day. I post daily. Just I'm six months into my one-year-long writing challenge. And then the other one is just you can email me at next, Andrew at nextcallclub.com. 
And then if you want to follow how I'm growing and scaling the agency, I have a newsletter as well. I send it out every two weeks and I always break down our numbers, how we got there. I share a process and then I kind of tell you what I'm thinking about and how I'm growing the agency. So you can find that on my LinkedIn. You can find that on my Facebook. You can find that if you email me again, Andrew at nextcallclub.com. Andrew, I've learned a lot. It's been great, man. Hope to have you back on. We'll talk about some of these other ones. Cool. Brad, thank you so much and uh, looking forward to the next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew. I mean, there's so many things that really stand out. I think that obviously understanding customer acquisition costs, what are the things and the formulas that go into that was certainly big. When are you at break even? So when's your payback going to be? And then the lifetime value of the client. I think bigger than that, though, is the philosophy and the mindset of saying, whoa, wait a minute, that is thinking differently. I want to go and acquire some of those skills. You can do that, whether you connect with Andrew or just begin to have the right conversations and asking the right questions so that you can go and look at, hey, let me look at my salaries. Let me look at my compensation plans. It's not going to happen overnight. It may take you a little bit of time, but it's worth doing to be able to see, am I profitable with the salespeople that I have? Appreciate Andrew coming on board. Hey, big shout out to our podcast sponsor. Obviously, he gave us such a great lead in with Club Capital. So go to club.capital if you realize the importance of being able to look at your actual numbers and kind of seeing how does us all fit with my financial numbers and my sales numbers together. Go to club.capital. Hey, we just onboarded a new podcast sponsor and partner. We're really excited to welcome on Today App Pro. Go to todayapppro.com, Today App pro.com. Listen, there are a lot of different tools out there to be able to use to track compensation, et cetera, but there's not many of them that actually allow you to come to track compensation that have word tracks that are corporate and company approved, that they integrate with your CRM, that they calculate your commissions and they do all of that super seamlessly. Go to todayapppro.com and would you let the people at Today App Pro know that you heard about them on the Club Capital Leadership Podcast, todayapppro.com. On the episode with Andrew, we talked about the team. And so you need to start making possibly some tweaks to your compensation plans and to your structures. Obviously, Today App Pro is going to be able to help you track that and actually easily see kind of where the numbers are and not just the sales numbers, but also the commission numbers. So with that, it's so important to be able to say, hey, I know where my numbers are. I know what my commissions are, but I've got to be able to get great people. Autopilotrecruiting.com. So if you see this, you restructure compensation plans for your salespeople, but you want to be able to have a pipeline of great people, go to autopilotrecruiting.com. And then furthermore, it's so important to be able to develop those people. There's none better in the business as a coach than Coach P. Go to Coach P Consulting. He just spoke in my two-day MBA program and absolutely blew it away. Him and Alex, Alex with Autopilot Recruiting and David with Coach P Consulting. There's a reason I invited them to speak at my two-day MBA program that we just had at the beginning of August. Go to CoachPConsulting.com. He's going to give you an entire free month just for mentioning that you heard about him on the podcast. All right, everyone. Till next episode, lead well.